This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, my brother John and I are here to record an episode. John, what's up first in Calgary? So first up, we're going to talk about bronchodilators in tobacco-exposed persons with symptoms and preserved lung function. This was by Han et al., published in New England Journal, hot off the press, September 2022. Huh, New England Journal of Medicine. Never heard of that one. Must be like an up-and-coming journal or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of a lot of hype behind it. It should be pretty good. Huh. Okay, well, let's see. Let's see what we can do for these folks here to help promote their journal. All right, John, so uh, what was the research question in this study? What they wanted to know was, do bronchodilators improve outcomes in patients with a history of smoking but normal spirometry? Why was this important for you? Well, you know, COPD, of course, is an important diagnosis and disease that we see a lot in internal medicine. Now, there are groups of patients who have a history of smoking and do have respiratory symptoms, even though they have normal lung function on spirometry. And, you know, as well, based on smoking status, sometimes a presumed diagnosis of COPD is made, even if you might not have done the spirometry due to like resource concerns. And as a result, a lot of these patients may end up getting treated with bronchodilators, but we just don't know do these medications actually help them or not? And so the hypothesis here was that in those patients with a smoking history and clinically significant symptoms, despite normal lung function, are they going to benefit from bronchodilators? Yeah, I've definitely slapped the label of COPD um, in the absence of PFT results, but with a really strong smoking history. But I guess really this is actually getting at the individual who has a strong smoking history. They've done a PFT and they clearly do not have obstructive airway disease on pulmonary function testing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, I guess one of the considerations too is based on the natural history, might this be a group of patients who are going to develop COPD? You know, like, you know, Spiro is not a perfect test. And so assessing for maybe smaller airway obstruction disease, you're not going to find that on spirometry. And so I think the goal here too is like, what if we're able to even get ahead of the disease curve, if you will, from a natural history perspective? Yeah, I, I think the, the drug companies would like that, that's for sure, hand out some more puffers. But anyway, what was the study design here? So this was a multi-center blinded randomized control trial. Patients were aged 40 to 80 and either current or former smokers with at least a 10-pack year history of smoking. Respiratory symptoms were defined based on the CAT or COPD assessment test score of 10 or higher, and they had to have normal spirometry test results. Patients were excluded if they had a primary diagnosis of asthma or other known lung disease. Now, those patients who may have already been on puffers could still be included in the trial, but they had to go through a 30-day washout period. Uh, now, for the study design, they randomized patients, and this was stratified by smoking status, so again, current or former, and whether medication washout was warranted. And you're randomized one-to-one to indactrol plus glycopyrrolate or placebo twice daily for 12 weeks. Patients were assessed based on symptomatology using a few different questionnaires, but kind of the key one was the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire or the SGRQ. And patients were assessed at baseline and at 12 weeks. Now, for the primary outcome, it was improvement by four points or more in the SGRQ, which was kind of, you know, clinically meaningful after 12 weeks without treatment failure. Now, the treatment failure component was defined as an increase in lower respiratory symptoms leading to long-acting bronchodilator, steroid use, or antibiotic use. And then there were a number of secondary outcomes as well. Gotcha. So placebo-controlled trial 
age 40 to 80, current or former smokers, but none had asthma or COPD. And if individuals were on a puffer before this, they could potentially stay in the trial, but had to go through a washout period. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So what did the patients look like who were included in the trial? So 535 patients were enrolled across 20 centers. 261 were assigned to active treatment, 274 to placebo. Uh, 28% of patients were already using puffers at baseline. The average age was 58.8, 48% were male, and 64% were current smokers. Now, ultimately, um, 471 patients were included in a modified intention to treat analysis, and this was in part due to issues around treatment completion. The COVID pandemic kind of got in the way with some things as well. Um, And those patients that were excluded, so who did not get into the modified intention to treat analysis, did tend to be younger and more likely to be current smokers. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess... You know, obviously, intention to treat is the ideal way to analyze these data. Um, That's what preserves randomization. But anyway, what were the main results here? Well, the main result was that there was no treatment effect observed in the modified intention to treat population. So in those that got puffers, 56% or 128 out of 227 versus 144 or 59% in the placebo group had at least that four point decrease in their uh, SGRQ score. There were similar results as well when they looked at like the per protocol analysis. You know what they did have a high adherence rate in the study with 88% of doses being taken both in the treatment and placebo groups. They didn't show um, any major concerns from an adverse event perspective. You know, some of the most common side effects were actually cough and headache, but even between the placebo and the treatment groups. Hmm. All right. So what were the main limitations here? You know, the study follow-up period was only over 12 weeks. And so you do wonder, you know, what about kind of longer term outcomes for these patients? Um, The other question too is like, I've seen this entity before where patients have emphysematous changes on imaging but they have normal spirometry. And is that any further marker of like a unique subgroup kind of along that kind of COPD natural history that could benefit from this? And, you know, imaging wasn't used as part of further diagnostic considerations for other changes. So a couple of things to consider. Gotcha. Yeah, it's really impressive that they were able to pull off a placebo controlled trial um, because I think there's going to be a large placebo effect um, without including a placebo. So good on them for that. But I agree, you know, pretty short follow-up period. Anyway, what's the take-home point here? The take-home here is that no benefit was seen using dual bronchodilator therapy in patients who have a smoking history, but a normal lung function test. Okay. And is this practice changing? Well, I think, you know, not that I would prescribe puffers a lot outside of spirometry, but it's probably a a signal to physicians that, you know, really the people that are going to benefit from using Uh, long-acting puffers are those who have a confirmed diagnosis based on spirometry, not just smoking history, not just on uh, kind of the the clinical presentation. Yeah, I totally agree, especially based on this, you know, randomized placebo-controlled trial. I think, you know, deep breathing exercises, you can use those, um, but not deep breathing of a puffer if you don't have evidence of COPD on spirometry or PFTs. All right, cool. Uh, Next up, uh, also in this up-and-coming journal called the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, this study was titled Glycemia Reduction in Type 2 Diabetes Glycemic Outcomes, uh, published September 2022. Okay, what was the research question here? What is the comparative effectiveness of glucose-lowering medications uh, for adults who are currently on metformin uh, with type 2 diabetes? Okay. 
Uh, diabetes, big, uh, big part of our day-to-day life. Why is this important? Yeah, exactly. It's diabetes, right? Full stop. And it's kind of embarrassing. We have very few head-to-head clinical trials in the world of diabetes to know whether or not one medication is better than another, which is absurd when you think about it. But that is the world we live in. But here you go. Here's a large uh, randomized trial with long-term follow-up. So this is really impressive. Oh, this is going to be nice. I mean, sure, we have like actually pretty good guidelines from places like the Canadian Diabetes um, that kind of spell out what the next line of treatment should be but it'd be nice to know if there's really a definitive answer here okay so what was the design so this was an unblinded investigator initiated a multi-site randomized trial um, drug companies supplied the drug but that was it they included adults who were generally aged 30 and up had type 2 diabetes um, had diabetes for less than t- 10 years and were currently on at least 500 milligrams of uh, metformin without use of other glucose-lowering medications in the prior six months. Uh, Important exclusion criteria, if there was suspected type 1 diabetes, um, any major cardiovascular event in the past year, um, heart failure, pancreatitis, uh, GFR less than 30, um, severe liver disease, uh, alcoholism, and again, just to remind the listeners that if they are currently on any other diabetes drug other than metformin or had received one in the past six months, they could not be included. Uh, This study had a run-in period, and the goal of the run-in period was to get uh, everyone up to 1,000 milligrams of metformin per day, if not higher. And then eligible patients would be those who, um, despite uptitrating the metformin, had an A1C ranging from 6.8 to 8.5% at the end of the run-in. And what they looked at here were a number of different diabetes medications, so uh, long-acting glargine, so long-acting insulin, uh, glomeparide, which is a sulfonylurea, uh, liraglutide, which is um, uh, an injection, and citagliptin. And the outcome was achieving an A1C of 7% or higher. And although the trial was unblinded, the outcome adjudication was blinded. I'll also note that after a period of time, if their A1C remained above 7.5%, despite the second line agent, they did have um, glargine added to the regimen if they weren't randomized that in the first place. Okay, uh, so pretty big lofty trial here. Uh, table one, who are the patients involved? So 5,000 patients were randomized, Um, 20% were black, uh, 20% Hispanic or Latinx, and 65% white. Average age of 57 years, 65% were men. Uh, Mean duration of diabetes was four years. Uh, Mean BMI was 34. And the mean hemoglobin A1C after that run-in phase was 7.5%. Okay, what did they find? So individuals were followed for a mean of five years. Um, 95% completed their final study visit. And I'll mention up front that about 15% got another drug for diabetes outside of one of the study drugs. So how about this primary endpoint? So, you know, lower is better because they're trying to see the number of individuals who after treatment had an A1C of 7% and up. Okay, so a lower number is better. Um, So 26 per 100 patient years with glargine, um, 26 per 100 uh, patient years with liraglutide, uh, uh, with glomeparide, 30 per 100 
patient years, and worst was citagliptin, um, 38 per 100 patient years. And there are no major difference in these findings among subgroups by age, sex, or race. In terms of weight loss, um, people randomized to liraglutide lost approximately 10 pounds, uh, with citagliptin closer to 5 pounds, no change in weight with glargine or glimepiride. Um, severe hypoglycemia was more common with glimepiride at 2%, as opposed to glargine 1%, liraglutide 1%, and citagliptin just below 1%. The highest rates of um, adverse events were also with insulin and glimepiride. I should note that patients who got liraglutide, they were more likely to lose weight, but also more likely to report nausea. And then in terms of the treatment discontinuation rate, approximately 25% with glimepiride or liraglutide compared to 20% with citagliptin and 14% with glargine. Okay, so, you know, based on that lower is better, I guess like glargine and liraglutide for the win, but you know, trade off of some side effect considerations. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? First, it's unblinded, right? And it's unblinded for good reason. Some people are getting injections, some people are getting pills. Of course, you could try to blind that, but it's really hard, okay? So I don't heavily criticize um, the authors for doing this. And the goal of this was like a pragmatic trial to see what might happen um, in as close to real life as possible. So lack of blinding, of course, can lead to performance bias. If the patient knows what he or she got, they might act differently. Uh, also, A1C is a surrogate outcome, right? Patients care about heart attacks, strokes, dying of cardiovascular disease. How much does a patient care about marginal improvements over the hemoglobin A1C? Ugh, not all that much. And then, of course, uh, no mention of SGLT2s. What's that about? Um, it really just had to do with the time in which this study was being uh, planned and designed. Um, those new kids on the block weren't even on the block yet. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Because I was going to say, a diabetes trial in the modern era with no consideration for SGLT2 inhibitors. I can't even say that word anymore. Uh, anyways, what was the take-home point here? So I think it reinforces what I hope we already know. Sulfonylureas, they kind of suck, all right? They're good at causing hypoglycemia. They're not all that great at improving your body weight, nor are they all that great at improving your hemoglobin A1C. And DPP-4 inhibitors also, you know, not all that great here. So in terms of reducing hemoglobin A1C, um, insulin and loraglutide, the GLP-1 analog, were clearly the best, but Insulin sucks, right? I mean, the weight gain with insulin, the hypos, etc. I'm clearly editorializing, um, but this is a really impressive, uh, large, randomized trial, and I can't wait to see other long-term outcomes in terms of cardiovascular events because it's well known that none of those drugs improve heart endpoints, with the exception of something like you know GLP-1 analogs. Okay, I think we need our provincial regulators to listen to this episode and read this paper because it's so frustrating. Like, I have no problem getting my patient access to sulfonylureas. I can get them other medications that have no important cardiac outcomes, but as soon as you try to prescribe something else that's actually going to improve things, it's going to cost a whole heck of a lot or they're not going to get access to it. It's crazy. Yeah, I agree. And it does... You know, it's unfortunate how much GLP-1 analogs cost, for sure. That's a major barrier. Um, but for individuals who have a drug plan or a cost isn't a barrier, you know, we really, I don't think we should be pres prescribing sulfonylureas or, or DPP-4 inhibitors. It, there's also a really fascinating origin story. Um, do you know the origin story behind sulfonylureas, John? Like how, how they came about? No, actually, I do not. 
Okay, so um, going back uh, many years ago, pre-monkeypox, um, pre-COVID-19 was typhoid. And there was a belief that um, this sulfa-based compound might be effective for the treatment um, of typhoid. So what they did is they did a study with you know puppy dogs and kittens, and, and they gave them the sulfa-based drugs. And what they saw is that some of these dogs, puppies, and kittens would like start seizing, and some of them would just like go unconscious. Uh, do you want to guess why that was? I believe that was the hypoglycemia. Boom. Boom. Okay. So these drugs, that was their origin story. And someone was like, whoa, okay, like maybe this could help with diabetes. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's just really good at causing low blood glucose. So anyway, the drugs I certainly like to stop and avoid. Um, but there you go. That is amazing medical history. I don't know how I never heard of that before. Okay, very cool. Anyways, um, this study, practice changing for you? Yeah, it's really practice affirming. Um, so certainly GLP-1 analogs. I'm not a huge fan of liraglutide uh, because it's um, you know daily injection. Um, semaglutide is once a week, but it's certainly practice affirming for me to continue to stop those sulfonylureas, continue to start GLP-1 analogs, and continue to avoid DPV. DPP4 inhibitors. Okay, I like it. Cool, John. All right, uh, we are in the home stretch, uh, so that means it's time for the good stuff. Uh, what good stuff has caught your eye recently? So for the good stuff, you know, forgive me, listeners, if I've already mentioned this guy before or not, but I think he's good enough that he warrants like a, a rehype up on Twitter. Tony Brio. I'm gonna. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name properly or not, but uh, Tony underscore b-r-e-u he's a physician i believe he's based at harvard and works at one of those affiliated hospitals but he's just got these incredible tutorials on all things medicine related so he just asks really interesting questions so for example um, so one of them was like, why is it that 100,000 colony forming units per mil was part of the diagnostic considerations for being important for urinary tract infection? And he does these deep dives and finds like papers that are obscure and remote to help justify why we do some of the things that we do. You can go down a rabbit hole. This guy's got lots of really interesting tutorials. Check him out. Yeah, I agree. I've seen some as well and um, certainly have gone down those rabbit holes and, and, and learned a thing or two along the way. Um, so my good stuff is, um, uh, so you can follow her on Instagram, not a physician, not at Harvard, um, but I'm going to say local artist here in Toronto. Um, her name is Carly Roselle, um, my wife's best friend and a very good friend of mine. She makes these incredible pressed flowers. Uh, I guess like, um, you know, a picture's worth, worth a thousand words. So if you go to my underscore wild underscore wildflowers, and we'll post this obviously um, in the show notes, just some really cool stuff she does, thinking about those, especially as the holiday season, fortunately is not too far away oh i've seen some of those you show me the photos and they are pretty impressive so okay check it out agreed and for the listeners no conflicts of interest i'm getting no kickbacks here okay not even a discount <laughs> but anyway all right come on carly give them a discount <laughs> i know if you're listening there you go uh anyway john great to chat and uh, we'll talk again soon talk to you soon mike the rounds table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of the Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. 
We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, Editor-in-Chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.